are building, we are building, we are building. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Daniels, host of the Build Community Through Love podcast, where we highlight the efforts and strategies used to empower and grow community through economic development, community development, and education. Welcome, everybody, to episode number six. I have on here today my mentor, one of my mentors, Crystal McDonald. Uh, Chris McDonald, um, I'm gonna share with her with you here in a little bit, man. She is what she's one of the per- people who who uh, inspired me to go and pushed me to go to North Carolina A&T State University to pursue my bachelor's in civil engineering, and that put me on a great trajectory uh, since I left high school in 2009. Uh, but more than anything, man, she is doing things that is changing community through the energy sector. So let's get into the show. Welcome. Thank you, how, Joey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here with you today. I'm look. There's like, I just remember leaving high school, and there was like five people who have the biggest impact on my trajectory from Silver Spring, Maryland. And so I remember I was like, I gotta play football. I want to play football. And mm-hmm. I'll get a degree, but I need to play football. Like, that has to be the thing. And so dad was like, okay, we'll figure out where you need to go and, you know, at least have a place where if football doesn't work out, you can get a degree. Uh-huh. So engineering was always a thing. And so dad was like, okay, well, there's a lady at church. Her and her husband, you know, they both went to uh, A&T. Let's mm-hmm. see what they have to say. And then you guys, I think, convinced my parents so much that they took me to uh A&T on Valentine's Day weekend what <laughs> and I had a and I had a girlfriend in high school and like you know how that is you gonna take yes. me away from my girlfriend <laughs> on Valentine's Day and so I can say that uh me and, me and that girlfriend didn't work out but I fell in love with a and and uh, I have I have you to thank for that so thank you so much and I thank you for being on the show today Oh, thank uh, you Joey thank you I'm, I'm I'm humbled and I'm glad you made that decision Absolutely. I really am. Aggie Pride. Aggie Pride. It was one Aggie of the best Pride. decisions of my life, for sure. <laughs> so I, real quick, I just want to dive into your background because I know that mm-hmm. you're from Washington, D.C., or you're a native Washingtonian, just like yes, my mom. I am. And so, uh, you know, walk me through that, like how that was back when you were growing up in the D.C. public school system. And because you went to Dunbar, right? I did. So I take did. Take me back to some of those experiences. So, yeah, so I hail from, they call it Uptown in D.C. Okay. Um, first few years of my life were not far from where Emory Fellowship is located. I grew up for, uh, 14th in Tuckerman, and then I moved to what's known as North Michigan Park near Providence Hospital. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that was my hood. That was my neighborhood. It was the neighborhood where I walked to the McDonald's on South Dakota Avenue. I rode my bike everywhere. And yes, I was educated in D.C. public schools. I went through um, Barnard Elementary, Bertie Backus Junior High School, right there on South Dakota Avenue. And then for high school, um, I wanted to do something different for my friends from, from Bertie Backus. And I knew I had an interest in arts and sciences. And so uh, Dunbar Pre-Engineering Program. It was the mm. second year of Dunbar Pre-Engineering High School. And fortunately, I, was, I applied to the program and was accepted. And I tell you, it was one of the, um, 
another great experience for me because that allowed us to have like a school within a school mm-hmm. and really focus on arts and sciences. Um, and not all of my classmates studied engineering, graduated to study engineering, but they all, most of them did pretty well. And you have to understand the dynamics of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated from high school in 87. So this was like right in the thick of the crack epidemic in DC. So, you know, I used to take the, the public transportation, get off on North Capitol Street and walk through some neighborhoods where, you know, it wasn't safe at all. And, you know, it was the first time I saw somebody shoot up in the alley. That was when I got um, the, my education on what the hustler life was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the drug dealers and so on. But from that bus stop all the way to Dunbar, um, I learned a lot on the streets of D.C. But when I got into Dunbar High School, it was all about um, being exposed and having certain experiences that just, you know, stretched my imagination and um, I'm forever grateful to the administrators of that program um, and the, the teachers of that program. So Dunbar was everything to me for three years of my life. Um, and so during that exposure, um, I had opportunities to travel abroad. I traveled with a delegation to China. So imagine that, a little Black girl from D.C. Mm. traveling with a national delegation to China. And that was when, this was during the Reagan years when, uh, well, right after the Reagan years when uh, China opened up to the West. And so our delegation was to go and establish a sisterly relationship between Washington, D.C. and Beijing. Hmm. And at the same time, we had opportunity to travel across the country um, to several different provinces, some urban some rural and then some suburban so lots of different exposure and then we had summer opportunities uh like i had a summer job at the navy yard working with um, a real engineer and a real architect you know so like i said it was all about early exposure and it got me to thinking like "Mm, what can i really do with my life and so from um after i graduated from high school by then i explored different colleges i was very interested in architectural engineering Mm -hmm. i kind of honed in on ae like very early because i was like oh this is exciting because it's a mix of the arts as well as engineering so it brought the design world together with the technical world and i was um really all set to go to drexel imagine that right Drexel? Um, <laughs> Drexel University. <laughs> yes. I applied um, to Drexel. I applied to Drexel. Yes. Shout out to Drexel. Yep, yep. And so, I mean, at that time, there were only about five or six architectural engineering programs mm-hmm. on the East Coast. And A&T had one of them. So one of my neighbors, an A&T alum, had gathered a bunch of kids. And he's like, hey, Crystal. You talk to my parents, let's go to A&T. And so I was the oldest one of the bunch. And, I, and keep in mind, I had already set my, my sights on Drexel University. So I went down to A&T for University Day weekend. And my life was forever changed. Mm. Because, you know, it was just a sense of, sense of warmth and comfort 
on that campus. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to speak to the Dean of Architectural Engineering like that weekend. Uh, that's why I'll never forget Dr. Rajeski. We had a conversation about my interests, what I wanted to do. And then, you know, after that conversation and then speaking to some other kids on campus, it was like, you know, I belong here. This is where I belong. And so, um, you know, we set the paperwork in motion, like without my parents' knowledge and all that. <laughs> but two weeks later, I was accepted at A&T. And um, as they say, the rest is history. You know, Aggieland is where I grew up as an individual, where I became even more exposed to lots of different people uh, from diverse backgrounds. And yes, it is an HBCU, but you know, we're not a monolithic group. We all have different experiences. Oh, Lord, we come we? from different places. Mm -hmm. We don't all speak the same way. We don't all dress the same way. So it was um, a different kind of diversity for me that um, it changed my life. But at the same time, while I was dealing with a difficult academic subject, I had unbelievable support from uh, my dean and, and staff and, and even like grad students and so on. So it was awesome. It was awesome. So so take me back real quick because because I, I want to have a quick segue uh, before we get back into it. But talk to me about especially as you look back and reflect on your high school experience and going to China and going all across the United States. Talk to me about what you think the level of access that you had and exposure that you had and how important that is. And, uh, you know, did, did that set you apart from uh, the, those who were also having to walk down the same streets that you, that you walked down past people shooting up, past people selling dope, past people getting arrested or frisked. Talk mm -hmm. to me about what the importance of exposure meant to you and your development. You know, my, my mom especially, but my parents in general, they were just very supportive of, you know, taking family trips and going places. Um, my mom was originally from um, North Carolina. She's from Farmville, North Carolina, um, and she rests in peace. And my dad is a Washingtonian. But my mother was adamant about doing different things, going different places. Even um, she was adamant about getting out of our zip code. There were times when she took us to different events, like here in D.C. I remember one time I had never been to a ski resort in my life as a kid. But there was a, an exhibit down on the ellipse behind the White House where somebody came in and built like hills so you can have a cross-country skiing experience you know to me that was incredible for a kid who has never been to a ski resort or just to skiing so she was very adamant about um, getting us out of the zip code and traveling where we could you know even to North Carolina and beyond and um, I think that sense of adventure and curiosity always sat with me and so when the opportunity came uh, for me to go to China, I actually went to China with my high school principal, who actually, I'm sorry, junior high school principal, Mr. Millard, who led the delegation. And while it was something new for my entire family, who had never even thought about going to uh, any place in Asia, it was, an, it was a sense of adventure. And I remember being nervous about it. 
and my parents were probably nervous, but my mother taught me what faith was at that time. Mm. She said, you're going over the ocean. It was probably like a 13 or 14 hour flight. You're going over the ocean. And keep in mind, I was doing a study tour on, on mainland China as well, flying or taking a train or what have you. But she says, just know that your faith, your faith is strong enough to keep that plane up in the sky going over that ocean. So I just believe my faith was strong enough to do anything <laughs> to move mountains. Because, you know, it was kind of shaky sometimes. But then, you know, I also had my aerodynamics course in my head because I had taken aerodynamics at, at Dunbar. And I was just like, okay, you know, <laughs> we can do this. We can do this. But I just remember her instilling that sense of curiosity and adventure and more than anything that faith that I, I could just do anything um and i'm not limited to to my zip code i'm not limited to what's happening in dc you know because i i was i have pretty good um pretty solid foundation you know raised in the church and then involved in civic organizations um growing up i was a part of the early classes at the uh, the mayor mayor Barry's Youth Leadership Institute. Mm -hmm. um, still have lots of good friends from that program. That program still exists to this day, thankfully. Um, so pretty solid upbringing. But what changed my life was leaving the zip code, leaving DC, and just kind of uh, getting beyond your your um, comfortable surroundings. So um, yeah, it was incredible. Dope. It was incredible. Yeah. And so you, you end up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Yes. Home of the Anti-4, home of just great Aggies through and through from the beginning. From astronauts to president. From, look, let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> when you I was know, there, that's what the chancellor used to always say, from astronauts to presidents. There is an actually a Ronald McNair Junior High School out here in Arkansas. Wow. Yeah, I'm like, oh, awesome. look at that. Okay, I see you, boy. I see you. So <laughs> I'm like, come through, come through. He he went to the he went to T. He went to T. Hold on. Let's let's get this. Yes, through. yes. So you get there and now you've gone from fast paced DC. Now you're in now you're in Greensboro. It was slower lifestyle. Uh, mm -hmm. uh and so now you've kind of put your grips into it's engineering thing for real. And so it's not just pre-engineering anymore. You in here, you know, doing the real, real. Uh, and so, and so what was your experience at A&T with the rigors of the engineering program? And then where did you want to take your career um, even while you were still in school? You know, at that time with the rigors of, of coursework, um, you know, I was always a social butterfly. So I had to figure out a way to balance that being sociable and, um, you know, really focusing on my classes because I also uh, had a scholarship and in order to maintain that scholarship, I had to maintain a certain GPA. So that kind of kept me balanced. You know, if I, if I wanted to stay in school, I needed to maintain a certain GPA, but again, I wanted to do the social thing. Um, fortunately, I mentioned the nurturing spirit of, of Aggieland before. There were uh, some, some engineering students ahead of me, of course, who invited me to NSBE, uh, the National Society of Black Engineers meeting. 
And from there, it's like I took on a new family, a very supportive family that was always encouraging. And, you know, we did things. We had fun. We traveled to meet other engineering students on other campuses, learning that we all have similar challenges. Um, but we were also exposed to professional Black engineers. It's just like, wow. And they were doing everything all over the place. I mean, from entrepreneurial uh, folks to, you know, people who were, say, in biomedical engineering to electrical engineering designers, you know, um, and there's just in the incredible array of uh, opportunity in the field of engineering. Uh, I had the good fortune, like I said, to be exposed to some professional engineers, but never to the degree that um, Nesby exposed me to. But I also had um, a, a scholarship at the Potomac Electric Power Company. We know it as PEPCO, the, the local utility company. And they brought me back every summer for an internship. And so that gave me exposure as well. And I had a fantastic uh, mentor who is now a utility executive. She went back to Jamaica, became a utility executive. But they gave me like real projects, real uh, topics to like do some critical thinking and problem solve. And it was just an incredible feeling to take um, a problem or a concept and bring it to fruition. Seeing that was exciting to me. And I just wanted to make that happen. Not only was it powerful, but it was like meaningful. You mm -hmm. know, my mom used to always say, if you start something, you, sh you need to finish it. And, you know, to see that, that, that product come into fruition, it was just like very re rewarding. And so um, from that, I just, I stuck with the utility company. Um, other than the fact it was there, you know, during that time, when I graduated, uh, I forget which administration it was, but the economy was challenged. And so I was just fortunate to come out and have a, a job, be able to be employed and, you know, attractive salary, fantastic opportunity, and so incredible benefits. And uh, I got a lot of exposure while I was at Pepco. And you think it's an electric utility company, but I also worked, I used my AE degree to work with new construction projects. And so that created a lane with me in relationships with architects and engineers and so on. And in working in utility was all about energy, right? And so that gave me exposure to the world of energy efficiency. And I'm just like, wow. So it's just like one thing led to the next. And I tell anybody with engineering, I mean, you pretty much can go anywhere after you've had that discipline of studying engineering, completing a degree, but it can take you into so many different directions, it becomes a building block. Mm -hmm. So moving from that strictly architectural engineering background, moving into building environmental systems, um, that's, you know, your, your heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, your lighting, um, as you know, civil engineers are res responsible for the structure, the foundation, and all of that. And, and then um, with uh, commercial energy services, you're, you get very involved in how does the building feel? Are the occupants comfortable? Mm. Do they have the right systems? How do we give them a comfortable experience using uh, the least amount of energy? And that's where the energy efficiency piece comes into 
Um, and so from there, I went on to George Washington University and pursued a degree in energy and environmental management at the School of Engineering. So it's, the degree is actually called uh, Master's in Engineering Management. Mm-hmm. They've evolved like most universities and call that something else by now. But I now work with several younger people who have uh, the same degree, actually. Um, so anyway, that that gave me even more exposure to issues of the environment and sustainability. So, you know, you combine the energy efficiency and the sustainability efforts that are happening uh, around the world. I remember the first policy that I remember studying to uh, the nth degree in grad school was around the Kyoto Protocol, which has evolved, evolved, evolved over the years. And most recently, we may know it as the Paris Agreement. Um, Yeah. So lots of policies that have been put in place around the world to, uh, yeah, people, we want to live a certain lifestyle. So we want to use energy. But yeah. how do we use energy with fewer natural resources? For sure. So yeah. So that's, uh, that's that's deep. So so because of your internship with Pepco, mm-hmm. you opened up to this new world that may not have been introduced to you in your textbooks and in your course seminars and all whatever. But because right. you had that real world experience while you were going through school, you were able to then utilize the resources you had while at A&T, the connections that you made through Nesby, um, and then be able to, to, to use your, your internship to kind of craft this and actually navigate this path through energy. And I'm sure, <laughs> and I'm sure you didn't go to school for energy, <laughs> but that's kind of what, that's the lane that you, that you, that you saw that you could have that you that interests you that you saw that you could have value in and that you were able to navigate and, and I think the, the one thing that I liked the most about what you said was uh, being able to you know see things in and that, that interests you in your lane and then traverse those those areas because yeah. you know when people go to people go to school for engineering and I, and I get this question a lot since I have a PhD mm-hmm. in engineering, I was in school for dag near 10 years pursuing mm-hmm. engineering. Right. And so oftentimes the idea is I'm going to go get a mechanical engineering degree. I'm going to go get an electrical engineering degree so that I can go work at this. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind, but you know, be open to, to experiencing different pivot points within your career. Uh, because engineering, like you said earlier about A&T is not monolithic. And so there's all types of ways that you can go. And so real quick question, did you go to GW right after A&T or did you, you, or, or, or were you fascinated by the internship and 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 a job first that made you go back to GW? No, you know, um, after A&T and I started working for Pepco full time, I just wanted to rest, relax, enjoy a paycheck and really figure out what my next step would be. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, after you land that first job, you realize that is not your final destination. Mm. You know, talk, um, talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. it's not your final destination. And um, I just became more in tune with real world situations, climate change. And, you know, back then the big thing for us was uh, refrigerants causing, um, you know, greenhouse gas effects. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, so greenhouse gases were a huge thing back then and caused by, you know, man-made pollution. But anyway, I started looking at that and I started thinking about, okay, Chris, what is your real purpose in life? And I started thinking about environmental stewardship. Mm. And I started thinking about scripture, how the scripture tells us that we are to govern our, our earth you know, and, and take care of our uh, the animal life uh, and natural life, natural resources. You know, we're, we're um, called to do that. And I'm just like, wow, how can I put, you know, what I've studied professional, professionally to the stewardship that I believe God has called me to? And so, um, yeah, and that's when I became more focused on sustainability issues. So, you know, I did a career, I, I, you know, I did my stint as a commercial energy services engineer at Pepco. And then I went on to do some engineering consulting. And then from there, because of my role in energy efficiency, and um, I was a part of professional organizations and so on, so got some exposure, and then was recruited to move to Chicago. I work with what we now know, um, the parent company is Exelon, but I moved there to work at uh, uh, Commonwealth Edison, the utility company for Chicago. And then from there, I jumped over to the uh, deregulated side of the business it was a competitive business and that's where we were giving people choice to choose their energy supplier so they could save money um you know utility bills are always a, what they call kitchen table issue um that that didn't pan out not because of our business structure but back then there was this huge um debacle with enron which impacted our business and our ability to sell power competitively. Uh, it was really bad back then, late 90s, early 2000s. Like I remember small manufacturers like going out of business because of the inflated cost of power. Hmm. So utility expenses are a real thing for just everyday operations. Um, so that was huge. And um, the other thing I realized during that, that Exelon experience is that what we were trying to do with energy, it was like we were trying to use this patchwork approach without a national energy policy. And I realized, you know, we can't do this. We, we can't try to do retail wheeling from one state to the next. And the, the state in the middle is just not interested. It's like, we're good. Our cost of power is cheap. But the two neighboring states, the cost of power is driving people out of business. So we called it retail wheeling back then. But anyway, without a national policy, it just wasn't working. And so I became interested in policy after that. So, um, yeah, so business went down. And I actually took a package and came back home. It took me years to get back into the energy world. And, you know, I still earned a living and I still um, did some fun and exciting things. I, I did some marketing um, domestically and internationally and um, internationally. So that was exciting. But during the previous administration, I had an opportunity to get back into energy efficiency, renewable energy. That was my world, right? And um, so I went back and I was accepted into the government under the Obama administration. And um, it, was, it was awesome. The impact... Um, the programs we were making back then, that's when the economy was tanking, like um, late 2008, 2009. So I started in the government, what, 2010? 
and under the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. And so that's when I really became interested in policy and how we use policy as a tool to solve problems for our citizens, right? Um, in my role there, I, I worked on projects across the country. I did have an, a chance to sit on a panel with um, the Environmental Protection Agency. They did an environmental justice panel down in Port Arthur, Texas. This is when I knew that I had to do something to help my people. Mm. Went down to Port Arthur, Texas. The mayor, she was awesome. Her grandson was in Howard. She found out I was from DC. She was so excited. But anyway, after sitting on that environmental justice panel, I realized the impact of, um, you know, when our folks are living in climates that just aren't clean yeah. and the health impact. Yeah. You know, you start talking, you look at the rate of illnesses where the groundwater is dirty or the air is polluted and you, you're, you've got, you were in a hurricane zone, you got your, your FEMA money, but you rebuilt right along the brown fence line where there's like oil tank farms. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And then it's like, okay, you know, the, the big companies are saying, we're bringing our business here. We're going to hire local people. But I find out that the workers at those tank farms, they've been imported in. So, and they get up every day. They're living in the same hotel where I was staying, getting up every day to go work at these refineries and these oil tank farms and so on. So what happens to the workforce development in the local community? Why aren't they getting these high paid jobs and getting the skills training and so on and so forth? And then I took, um, a tour around the city and this was not long after one of the hurricanes and it broke my heart i was like I was, i'm supposed to be a professional but i'm like in tears crying at how you know my community is suffering down in port arthur texas that's why that's when i knew we have to educate we gotta educate and we gotta reach out to people to to really make that connection and I think that's what was missing. People, mm -hmm. yes, they're concerned about paying their bills as they should, but there is a way to save on the costs of your bills mm -hmm. and also be healthy where you live. You know, so tying those environmental justice issues with energy efficiency and learning how to live with uh, sustainable energy alternatives, all of that matters to the longevity and the health and well-being of you as an individual as and as a community so my my goal then became to connect the dots for these marginalized communities you know and it's all interrelated it, it really is and that's that's interesting because if you look at your job title or if you just look at your your job experience from a resume standpoint you don't you don't necessarily think about energy being you know the, the 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 core connection of a community at all mm -hmm. and so but now that you now that you point that out it makes sense right like like where are your landfills typically located where are your power plants typically located where are your that and so you start thinking about you start thinking about energy fundamentally from an engineering standpoint mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then you start going out and you and you begin to branch out and you're saying okay now you know policy is great but then you start thinking about policy from just a um uh a a a a fan in the stands standpoint so you're just looking at what's happening 
but now you're saying, okay, well, these policies are now are now are affecting where businesses make their headquarters, where businesses are able to, you know, build their manufacturing plants. Um, I actually worked for, I did my internships with a big oil uh, company, um, oil and petroleum um, mm-hmm. upstream and downstream. And so you start thinking about from that standpoint, okay, well, you know, where do you have your refineries and who gets to work at your refineries? And so right. talk to me about like, you know, certain policies that stick out that you're allowed to talk about um, that you were able to try to craft and, and begin to push to see that, you know, certain communities that, that were disenfranchised uh, were able to, to, to actually be helped out based on, on policy. Sure. So I didn't craft uh, this particular policy, but I was able to use it to get the job done that was intended. Um, I mentioned the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. Basically, that was when that was a big stimulus plan that was to um, use the administration had, you know, allocated a lot of cash to be infused into our economy to keep people going to get uh, city states companies going. And, um, you know, at the core of that was the Energy uh, Information and Securities Act that was signed by the Bush administration. I want to say it was around 2007. I'm sorry, I don't have my textbook with me, Joey. But um, <laughs> I thought so, you wrote the textbook. <laughs> <laughs> so the agency was responsible for uh, looking at energy, uh, energy from a national security perspective. Um, so we used that along with cash to help communities, states, local governments, school districts, and, um, and so on, help communities identify energy efficiency uh, projects or sustainable energy projects that will um, provide jobs for the community as well as improve their energy performance. Hmm. And that was phenomenal. I did a lot of small grants and uh, I was responsible for the state of South Carolina and Texas, but I also did some larger projects like in California, a, a water district, Central Basin Water District, and um, Arizona. Yeah, where, where was, no, I was in New, New Mexico. Um, it was a recycling hub, you mm. know, uh, learning how to reduce and reuse, right? Realizing that some of the materials that material uh, waste products they do have an end uh, end life market value so you could bundle that stuff and resell it and so on so um but seeing the impact of that program um who that restored dignity gave people jobs to actually implement something that will help their communities like the led street lights traffic lights and so on Mm -hmm. that was extremely rewarding you know, when you go and talk to a small town mayor, they don't care who's in office. They just want their people to be able to work and buy groceries for their families. Mm-hmm. Or you talk to a school district and they're just happy to get some um, LED lights that's going to help improve the their classroom environment so kids can actually enjoy the benefits of uh, decent lighting, you know? Or, you know, speak to... Um, a state energy office director who are trying to create green jobs as well as deploy these projects. So to see that kind of um, activity happening directly on the ground was extremely rewarding, you know, 
they 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 didn't care about the infighting going on on Capitol Hill. Right. You know, they cared about putting food on their tables. The basic needs to to have a sustainable community. Exactly. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And so, yeah. what's the trend right now in, in the direction of of green energy, renewable energy? If I read somewhere correct, I think Hawaii wanted to become completely 100% renewable by like 2048 or something like that, or 24 yeah. maybe. And so, you know, what's the direction? I know with the current administration, a lot of things when it comes to energy has been been taken out because we want to replace everything with clean coal. Um, yeah pause for that moment but well you know what i'm, I'm, I'm gonna say this is what i'm gonna say because i have since left to go the government over a year ago um but i work on an awesome platform that still exists it's called better buildings and i worked on that uh platform for a while before leaving that's where we took um best practices um and tools and resources that could be shared from every sector of our economy and sort of developed this repository of uh, case studies, calculators, everything that could be used. And um, it's announced it's on what's called the Better Building Solution Center. And it's a, a, a repository of information for every sector of the economy from um, production plants to a local school. And anybody who was interested in saving energy financing their energy projects, looking for a case study, wanting technical references, or even pictures, a diagram. Uh, one of the things I led while at the agency at the US Department of Energy was an outdoor lighting accelerator. And that was to help cities and states recognize the benefits of LED street lighting or any type of roadway lighting. Um, because utility costs are a significant cost in cities. Um, but with with these conversions, we were seeing cities save up to 50, 60, 75 percent on their utility costs. And so we develop uh, materials to help them decide if they want to move forward with it or not, you know, looking at the technical and economic feasibility. So that information still sits there. Uh, and there's still some fantastic folks working in the agency, but I did leave the agency um with an opportunity to work closer to home and so now i'm working on uh, at a what's called the energy efficiency utility it's known as the dc sustainable energy utility mm -hmm. and we're on a performance contract with the district government dc has some of the uh cleanest uh most aggressive energy policies in the nation and so that's what we're here for to help um, rolled that out and so we're responsible for program design and implementation closer to home wow so this is and more so, pilot this is this is pilot prototyping type of systems that you're putting in place right now yeah it's it's used as um, an example for a lot of programs across the country awesome. um, but the 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 uh, you, the organization has been um, around for about 10 years no longer than yeah, about 10 years now. Okay. Yep. And uh, the parent company is um, the parent company who helps set, uh, set this up is in Vermont. But yeah, I'm working locally with a local organization to support our local communities from residential to um, some of the largest commercial and, and um, institutional organizations in the city. So we do everything from uh, oh, the, the reason I do like this organization is because 
It's not just about program implementation and so on, but uh, a huge component is the social justice component, which makes it different from a lot of um, energy efficiency programs. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, about 20% of our funding goes to affordable housing, um, including um, multifamily, single family home projects, um, yeah. and um, shelters, uh, income qualified healthcare clinics and things like that. And so impacting real lives here, right here in the district. So um, that's what is extremely that? rewarding. So what does that mean to you? Because I mean, if I when I think about you, because um, I know you, of course, but when I think about you, I think about, you know, a lot that you do is always centered around service. How am I serving my not my neighbor? How am I serving my family? How am I serving God? How am I serving my community? Mm -hmm. So tell me what it's like to actually work, a, to, 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 I say work a job, but tell me what it's like to wake up every day and be able to know that the work that you're doing is actually benefiting uh, those who are who are typically marginalized i tell you i um i think what brings it closer to home for me is the the people the customers the locations the organizations the groups we work with i know them hmm. you know I, I know folks. them. I, I've those are my people, right? Mm -hmm. I've I've walked through their doors. I've walked past their doors, been around the blocks. I've seen neighborhoods turn over and become something different, something new. But there's still something to to be had by the community. And I'll give you an example. And um, I'm not going to call their name, but um, I got wind that the church I grew up in they were working with the third party organization to get a new HVAC system for the church and for the parsonage. So they really needed this equipment. It was significant. Obviously they didn't have the cash to outlay. So this third party group was working with them on financing and so on, which is fabulous. But I, I got wind of what they were doing. I was like, Hey, um, when you're talking to your, um, your contractor or consultant, be sure to mention the DC Sustainable Energy Utility because we offer an incentive for high performing equipment. So be sure to bring that up in the conversation. And we also offer no cost technical assistance. And this is not to take anybody's job away, mm -hmm. but just be an advocate and give you the customer another pair of eyes. Mm. And it was a beautiful relationship. Every, they all came together. My team worked with them and they developed a beautiful package and they got um, an incentive that they, they've already essentially paid for because every energy user in the district pays into a sustainable energy trust fund. And we turn those dollars right back around to go right back into the community. We make sure um, low income and affordable housing uh, neighborhoods and, and multifamily units get their piece. There's a piece for solar and there's a piece for energy efficiency for every energy user who's interested in uh, upgrading or using uh, high, efficient, high efficiency equipment. So, like I said, I know these people. That's you know? beautiful. Isn't that? Man, that's that's what, super what beautiful. Can you that's do, right? beautiful. I just did not know the interconnectivity that energy had from a policy standpoint, from a social justice standpoint, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, you know, not having someone at the table and it, even in that space uh, yeah. can really, you know, 
continue to perpetuate uh, certain communities, you know, being without and not having. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't always mean those are just communities of color. You know, like you said, these small no. towns in the middle of nowhere, you know, yeah. are, are in need of basic supply of basic energy. Supply, yeah. um, and so, you know, the, there's places and spaces in the country where uh, there needs to be a form of governance so that large corporations can't take advantage of, you know, people's backyards uh, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's super impactful, super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so last thing as we wrap up, uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 situation that has happened, a lot of people weren't able to uh, experience uh, closure and commencement all at the same time. Um, so for high school students who uh, were looking to f uh, finish up and those high school students that are still finishing up mm -hmm. um, didn't get to go to prom, didn't get to do the whole you know, finishing up high school, uh, those who are finishing up with their undergraduate or their their, their graduate degree uh, didn't get to walk across the stage. And, you know, A&T, you know, we, 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 it's a, it's a sermon, it's a party, it's a, it's everything you wanted to be in them two, three hours. Absolutely, <laughs> so, absolutely. So for everybody listening, I know this is, this is very impromptu, but for everybody listening, uh, what would your message be to the high school senior and the uh, college graduate right now as they're pursuing their further education uh, or for those who are now pursuing a career? You know, um, the, this, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and it's a global pandemic, it forces us to think differently and so for those who are reaching these major milestones in their lives, and it's well achieved you know and um they they deserve celebration they deserve to celebrate to be recognized to be acknowledged what i will suggest is that they be open to celebrating differently differently so that they can have fun but still be safe um i'm thinking about uh, my goddaughter's high school graduation we just we just went all out for her this past weekend. Her parents, you know, said, you know what, we're going to take the celebration to our front yard and invite our family and friends to drive by and celebrate her. They even had party favors out that Marley and some other kids were just like running up to cars to pass out to say thank you for driving by and celebrating uh, my goddaughter, Micah. And people were dropping off gifts, they were giving party favors and, you know, doing this kind of car uh, parade. Because one thing I do know is that when we reach these milestones, you have to celebrate. Uh, because I've had so much loss in my own life, mm -hmm. every happy moment, I make, it a, a, I make it my business to have fun, to recognize, to celebrate, to just enjoy the good things in life. Mm -hmm. And we still can do that. We just need to do it safely because this coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, it's very real and it's impacting our community at significant rates. And there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening to episode six of the Build Community Love podcast with Crystal McDonald. Great information, especially that within the energy sector, renewable energy, within policy, 
Uh, but more importantly, that I think a lot of us need to, to really begin thinking about is, you know, how do we how do we still build community? How do we still serve community? How do we still impact community even in our day job? And uh, so we often don't really have to uh, uh, change our jobs to be able to do this. We just got to figure out how we can really have an impact for our communities, even in our W-2 jobs. Uh, so, guys, we can do this. We just got to, you know, think outside the box and have a heart of giving. All right. Take it away, Tiff. Thank you for listening to another episode on the Build Community Through Love podcast. Subscribe on all platforms to stay up to date with new episodes. Also, stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Build Community Through Love. And visit our website at buildcommunitythroughlove.com. Let's keep working, y'all. And if someone asks, tell them we're building. Thank you.